Hello, and welcome to Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Now, that's not to say that the other podcasts aren't evidence-based in the way that they generate research and put things around. It's just that just that we're really evidence-based, to the point where the entire podcast is centred around the four or five steps of evidence-based practice. And for those of you who haven't listened to this for a while, or maybe just had those drop out of your brain, they are, firstly, ask a clinical question. Acquire some information that you think might answer it, usually in the form of trials, papers, systematic reviews, things like that appraise those pieces of evidence, look for their strengths and their weaknesses, weigh up how they might work in clinical practice, and then apply that to the patient. And if it's terrible evidence or shows you that the what you're doing at the minute is actually the best of all things, then application is carrying on doing what you're doing. The fifth step, and this is why it's four or five, is to assess your performance in some way. And that there to really remind us that all of clinical practice, but particularly an evidence-based way, is a continuous professional development, stepping forward and making things better. Of course, you can also take that, assess your performance if you've done a service change and use something like QI or audit techniques to see has it made a difference to the patients. In this evidence-based podcast, we will be thinking about how to do evidence-based practice more practically and going over a case study that's been submitted. So, clinical practice guidelines. What makes a good guideline a good one? I mean, it could be it's ease of finding at 3.33 in the morning, Or maybe it's the clarity of figure two, which takes you through that path of the clinical findings, the tests you need to do and the actions that then follow. Or perhaps it's got that level of detail which satisfies your curiosity, but doesn't drown you in detail. All these certainly make a guideline a a good one, Um, but Perhaps the phrase easy to use might be a a clearer exposition than good quality when it comes to goodness. Now, previously, we've discussed how you can check a guideline using the Agree To checklist. Agree stands for the appraisal of guidelines, research and evaluation. And like many of those acronyms, it's sort of half beaten backwards from something that looks good into how do we make this fit our study? Anyway, the Agree To checklist covers not so much of the can I use it, is it pretty, can I get hold of it, and do I make sense of it on the ward, but more the can I trust it elements of goodness. The tool suggests that you look at the areas covered within the guidance, the technique used to source the papers, how the team was made up and how it assesses the risks of bias of the underlying studies and the the closeness to the usual patient group or the patient group within the guidance, then it will give you how that guideline combined all of that sort of evidence stuff along with clinical input from those stakeholders and the patient expertise and opinions as well. It will specifically ask, has this guideline been done free of undue influence? 
and then putting all that together, you come up with your final recommendation about how you think that the guidance has got there and whether it is a trustable and well-produced clinical practice guideline. Now, if you think about it, that sounds an awful lot like the key steps of doing evidence-based in the first place. And they actually are. If you just look at guidance as a 80% of the evidence-based medicine stuff done for you, and have they done it right, then, then, then go on and check them. You have these skills. Go use them. Appraise the guidance before you put them into practice, and you're already doing EBM, and you're doing it a lot more easily. Now, our clinical case from Archimedes this month relates to a 36-week gestation infant delivered vaginally to a primapara with an uncomplicated antenatal period. The baby was well following delivery, and then everybody popped to the postnatal ward, mum, baby and all. At two hours of life, a nurse attended on the mother and baby for routine care and found the newborn on the mum's chest, skin to skin, but without any respiration. The baby was bradycardic. It was fully resuscitated, including intubation and cardiac massage. The heart rate normalised, respiratory effort was poor, and the baby was noted to be abnormal neurologically. Transferred to the NICU after stabilisation, and then after a long discussion with the parents, initiated on therapeutic hypothermia. There was no particular cause found after a lot of investigation. After 72 hours, the hypothermia was completed and the baby was clinically well on rewarming. MRI brain at that point didn't show anything in particular and the baby was subsequently discharged and is under follow-up for neurodevelopmental assessment. In this setting, and that's a, 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 a not rare uh, but but relatively surprising and unusual event to happen. In this setting, the question emerges, is therapeutic hypothermia safe in infants following a sudden, unexpected postnatal collapse? S-U-P-C. SUPC. Now, for those of you who are relatively unconnected to neonates at the moment, you may not know that now that, that that event, sudden unexpected postnatal collapse, is a discrete um, entity or clinical event defined by the British Association of Perinatal Medicine as a term or near-term infant who is well at birth, assigned to routine postnatal care, and collapses unexpectedly within the first seven days of life requiring resuscitation and who either dies, requires intensive care, or develops an encephalopathy. The background to this is that around a third of patients do have some underlying defect that is diagnosed on investigation, but no identifiable cause at all in about 50%, with the others made up with other causes that are an explanation without a really solid underlying cause for the issue of, 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 of hypertension or infection or, or something else like that. The idea is that, that there might be a similarity to the sudden infant death syndrome and there might be a similarity to some extent 
um, to the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy setting. And that's why it's wondered whether therapeutic hypothermia might be a way forward. Now, this case was submitted by an extensive neonatal team who have lots and lots of expertise in this area. Currently, that's Cheryl Ann McKay from the King Edward Memorial Hospital for Women in Perth, Mary Isabel O'Dea, who's a neonatologist at the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital in Dublin, and Gayathri Alia Jepe, who is a neonatologist in Western Australia in Perth. Now that team went away and they looked extensively for evidence to support this. They went into Medline, they looked in Embase and Sinal, and even tried using Google Scholar to get extra things through. There was a combination of terms, as you would expect, looking at collapse using the sort of formal SUPC type word, but others as well, linked in with words about age. The search yielded 126 potential articles and going down the line of hierarchical sorts of approaches, looked initially for systematic reviews of RCTs or RCTs themselves, and then onwards down the level of cohorts or case series. There were seven papers that were identified. These were all case series or case is individually, um, ranging from single cases up to 26 babies that experienced this SUPC. Now, these are all times where people have pulled information together and published them. So we have a meta risk of bias type issue of, of what got into the literature. Maybe some reason why that occurred. What, what was it that drove the authors to write up this series of cases and potentially not other series of cases? Or what was it that encouraged the publishers to take this case report versus not other case reports? We've got that in the background. When the team pulled all these together, they noted really quite a marked difference about how therapeutic hypothermia was used in this total of 74 cases. 43 of them did receive therapeutic hypothermia and the rest didn't. The majority of these events occurred a bit like in the case with an early sort of onset within the first couple of hours of life. And again, similar to the, the sort of literature, around about a quarter of them had a really clear cause um, for the SUPC. Looking at who got the therapeutic hypothermia, remember these are observational rather than experimental or randomised, then they appeared to be offered potentially to the, the more severe cases, the, the ones that would hit the sort of HIE inclusion criteria within the more standard um, just-born intrapartum HIE uh, realms. Not everybody got therapeutic hypothermia in exactly the way that it would be delivered to the neonatal um, antepartum uh, HIE baby. What did they conclude given all of this mess together? Well, when they looked at the 43, nobody had reported any significant safety problems with this. On the other hand, these aren't studies, so it could be that safety issues weren't noted or, or weren't reported. And even if they weren't any, 43 is a small number to call something really safe. However, 
evidence-based medicine is about taking the best available evidence, not perfect evidence, and trying to put it into practice. Their clinical bottom lines are hugely considered, really, and are that therapeutic hypothermia should be considered in select infants following sudden unexpected postnatal collapse, but only after an informed discussion with the family. And that selection should avoid giving it to patients with a clear underlying medical cause, such as an intracranial hemorrhage, inborn error of metabolism, or a significant underlying infection, a severe consideration of that. And that is drawn from really the analogous literature in HIE, where things like that were problematic. It's worth having a read of this really well-written, hugely thought-out article, because it really does beautifully capture the challenges of trying to do something evidence-based and doing the best for your patients in an area where there isn't bucket loads of research. The team have done a superb job, but you could as well. If you want to be an Archimedes author, follow the instructions to authors on our website. Send in your draft ideas and we will help and mould and discuss them with you. Lots and lots of people have done this over time and that has become a really useful resource for those seeking to improve the evidence-based care of their patients. Now until next month, have a lovely time and enjoy the spring sprunging if you're in the Northern Hemisphere.